we are focused on ensuring that elections are verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent in process. And our belief is, is that it's about trust. It's about belief. And the way we get there is by moving away from black boxes and towards glass boxes. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Greg Miller, co-founder and chief operating officer at the nonprofit OSET Institute, which has been working for many years building open source election technology, new tools for our election infrastructure. They've built a platform called Elect OS, which is kind of like Android is to cell phones. They're working to restore faith in voting and democracy through the transparency that open source would allow. I really enjoyed learning about how Greg built a career in technology, business, and the law, and why he turned his attention to our election systems. He's a super interesting person, and the project is as well. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Greg at the OSET Institute. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Greg, how are you today? Fine, thanks, Nathaniel. It's great to be on with you. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Well, sure. Okay. Gregory Miller, co-founder, chief operating officer of the OSET Institute that stands for Open Source Election Technology. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit, 501c3, based in the heart of Silicon Valley, about 16 years old, about 70 people large now, with a mission to increase confidence in elections and their outcomes in defense of democracy as a matter of national security. About me, well, I get to play the adult in the room here for our organization. I've been in tech for 40 years, so I'm really at the, at the zenith of my career. So you're 40 years old? Uh, 45. Been around for a while. I'm a computer software engineer, computer scientist by training, graduate business work, MBA, finance and marketing, and uh, eventually my law degree. So recovering lawyer, uh, intellectual property and technology licensing was really my forte, but ended up learning quite a bit about elections law and all kinds of things along the way. Did the kind of standard tour of duty. I was uh, at Apple. I was at uh, Netscape, Mozilla, some microsystems, Tektronix, uh, and eventually um, ended up in the in the venture capital community before uh, finding this project with a number of my colleagues in the Silicon Valley. Wow, that's a that's a lot to bring to this, and I think to tackle something this ambitious, you need a lot of background. It, it really seems like the intersection of a lot of different challenges to try to even think about pulling off a wholesale 
revisioning and re-implementation of our election systems, which I know are varied right now and complicated and involve a few companies and a lot of theories. So what I try to do is go a little bit more into your background so that people who hear more about uh, what you're trying to do right now understand the expertise that you bring to it. Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and the beginnings of your educational path? Sure. Happy to. A couple of things I want to point out. One, I I have to say that I'm probably one of the lightest weight on the technology side of this team, just to kind of give you a perspective on it. So that was gracious of you to to say, but I'm probably on the lighter side of it, but still fairly competent enough. And this project is sort of the perfect storm of intersection between technology, policy, law, politics, et cetera. Although we tried to stay away from the politics part. You asked the question about my background, and it's it's always a little difficult because I've had an, an interesting journey. I'm always sort of slightly overwhelmed by the question because um, I just put it out there straight up. I'm an adult orphan. I have lost everyone in my family over the years, concentrated loss in the early 90s. I am the son of late parents who were Holocaust survivors. Not the grandson, not the great-grandson, not a cousin, but the son of. Um, for different reasons. My, my mother was Catholic. My father was Jewish. They both managed to get out 38 and 39, a tumultuous time. So to a certain extent, what I'm doing here is purpose in life. It's legacy because I learned through my parents how democracies can be demolished and the threat of fascism and autocracy and authoritarianism and and the like. That's kind of the backdrop on that. Spent the early years of my life up in a place called Lake Tahoe, the northern side of the lake. Uh, That's sort of a uh, north and south are kind of like Yankees Confederates up there in Tahoe. So I want to be clear, I was on the north side, but but quite by accident, my parents had uh, managed to immigrate and end up in the northwest. My mother was a mathematician and cryptographer by training, University of Washington, unusual for a German woman to be in mathematics, let alone ending up at the naval operations there in Bremerton. My father ended up there as well as a machinist, mechanical engineer. Um, et cetera. So we were somewhat always connected with the industrial military complex as folks uh, working as civilians in that space. My parents wanted to uh, give birth to me back in West Germany. They were on the way down to San Francisco to to head to eventually to Berlin. And everyone, all their German friends in the collection up in Northwest said, you have to go to the Shangri-La, this place called Lake Tahoe. It's going to remind you of home. And so they did, and they, they fell in love with it. And on the way out, they stopped in a, a place to have lunch and discovered that everyone there spoke some form or dialect of German. My father immediately recognized it was Swiss. One thing led to another, and they said, hey, listen, you're a machinist, mechanic, a mechanical engineer coming out of Boeing and aircraft work and stuff. We're building chairlifts. You see, they're going to hold the Olympics here in 1960. And uh, if we desperately need talented people, if we do well, we're going to get a project to build an aerial tramway. So I'll double your wages, whatever you're making up north, I'll double your salary and even give you a homestead of property if you stay for two years, but please stick around. And that's how it all happened. And I said, hey, I want to find out what's going on. So I ended up being about five weeks or six weeks early. (laughs) That's where life got started. The interesting thing about uh, my, my life in this regard is that I, I actually always consider myself an athlete first. So I was a soccer player initially, but ended up in track and field. And that took me all the way through my college at, career at started at Stanford, transferred up to University of Oregon, ran for the Ducks, uh, had a provisional qualifier uh, for the U.S. Olympic trials in 84 at 5,000 meters. And during that time, also matriculating as a computer scientist and engineer. So a lot of fun stuff in between. It's irrelevant here probably, but that's the rough of it, I guess. 
So what year did you graduate just to place it? High school, college, which college 81. Okay. So, uh, majoring in computer science in 81 was very rare or much more rare than today. Anyway, there's, there's a good reason for it. And it was an accident. Yeah. Tell me about how you got into computer science. I started out as an, as a, as an architectural history and architecture major and transferred up to Oregon on that basis and discovered very quickly that the architecture major was very inconsistent with being an NCAA division one athlete. My daughter's in, in architecture at the moment. And, so, uh, you, so you understand the design labs and everything else. And so one afternoon on a rundown after workout, um, I was dragged into, you had to stop into this big lecture hall said, you got to see there's this computer graphics demonstration going on from this company called Evans and Sutherland. You got to check it out. So I went in there and I watched this for a while. And I, was, I was amazed. I was captivated. I came out and as my teammate and I were heading over to Priest Trail across the Willamette River to run this foggy evening, I said, you know, I think that's the future of architecture. And my, my teammate said to me, he says, well, you know what they say about architects? They're artists who decided they need to make a living. And this is building the tools for those guys to make a living. So I checked into the computer science program and looked into it and the major and everything, found it to be, even though there were all night labs, right? It was still more conducive to to being an athlete. And so I switched and became a computer science and mathematics major and uh, took off from there. So you're right. 81 was an early time, but I had a lot of fun things there. I, I feel a little bit like Forrest Gump in some ways with the things that happened. For example, I was working in a microbiology lab over a snowed in Christmas that I couldn't get home. And I was told, hey, we got these two machines. They're PDP 1170s uh, and they're running the RSX 11 operating system. And we just got this big disk from AT&T. And these things were like pancakes, right? That you dropped them into the drive. And he said, we're going to try to fire up something called Unix on these things. So have fun for, for the next, uh, next five days. And so I did. And uh, we brought Russ Fernault's um, microbiology lab up onto then uh, the ARPANET uh, for the first time, figured out how to use telephone modem couplers, et cetera, et cetera. And so that started down that, that path towards uh, what would become, of course, the early work of the internet. And meanwhile, I had been very fortunate over on the other side of the, of the project back in the computer science department to decide to not go Fortran, go, go COBOL. You, you remember you had a split, right? You could either go COBOL or you could go Fortran. You're either going to be business computing or scientific computing. And I just went to the scientific side because it worked better with my, with my work over in Russ Fernald's lab and ended up um, moving into a whole different world in, of languages, Agol, uh, Symbolics, uh, 3600 machines running Lisp. And so started doing things in that whole area. And because of my architecture background, I got very interested in computer graphics and went that way. So those were kind of esoteric times. And you're right. They, were, they weren't what they are today, for sure. I guess I'm seven years later coming out of college, 88, and uh, definitely a dialect of Lisp called T. Was that Abelson Sussman book on that? And, Correct. Uh, yep. I was spending more time with Knuth and with the boys that were writing about Unix, but yeah. Yeah, Knuth and his algorithm books. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, indeed, indeed. God, I haven't heard about T in a long time. So I ended up going down a road to to learn uh, typesetting languages, a way to get closer to computer graphics. And so I was into the TROF world and DITROF uh, and TEX, T-E-X, um, which, of course, another Knuth project. Um that would eventually lead me into doing work in my early professional career uh, on a project called, you probably remember this one since we're doing a throwback day, uh, Xanadu, Ted Nelson's Xanadu. And of course, we know Xanadu is the very, ba the very basis of um, hypertext markup language and, and HTML, what, what would become XML, HTML, et cetera. 
but markup languages. Um, and that eventually led me into working with PostScript, uh, which was my first role working at Apple in a contract engineering capacity, working on uh, PostScript to create a laser printer. And then eventually that led me over to Next, where we worked on display PostScript for 4-bit monochrome displays. I remember those Next computers. They were kind of pretty and I never got to use one, but they seemed like a, a fun jobs project. Right? Next up was a, was an amazing project, and I, I was there at Next both in my capacity as a young lawyer in intellectual property doing patent prosecution for them, but also because of my uh, my work in layout, screen layout, and screen design with uh, with Display Postscript. And of course, as you know, Steve's project ended up morphing back into Apple, and is the roots of where we are today. So what I'm not clear about is. Where do you pick up an MBA along the way and a law degree? And how does that fit into this career that starts out in computer engineering stuff? So great, great question. One of the things that that we found early on in my work at, at uh, Tektronix and then a, a brief visiting stint at Xerox Park and then back to tech and then Sun Microsystems was that... Um, I, I did a pretty good job of organizing people and organizing work and doing scheduling and production and keeping the trains running on time. And so I immediately started becoming a project lead, project manager of, of software projects. Um, notably, you know, you could tell when someone was blowing smoke up your skirt as to schedules and technical complexities and things. And so you were there to try to help work things out. And I became a bit of an organizer, if you will, an activist for for the work that we were doing because it was an applied research lab. And every so often we had to go justify our purpose in life. That led me to um, extending the business work I'd done as a double major in computer science um, and doing graduate work and eventually getting the master's. And I should point out, too, just to be very precise, the actual degree was never completely conferred. It was an MBA CND because uh, I, was, I was short a paper and a course. And that's because um, we started getting into some real difficulties with intellectual property issues. You may remember the 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 early Apple uh, lawsuits uh, over look and feel and user interface stuff, right? And so I was talking with an advisor one day and, and she said, you know, MBAs are a dime a dozen right now. This is the the go-go years of Ronald Reagan, the twin R, Michael Milliken, the investment banking world, all that. She said, there's at some point, it's going to be just another brick in the wall. I said, well, just think about what you've done technically and what you're doing, understanding how this stuff works. The future, she said, really is an intellectual property law. And I think a law degree would be far more beneficial than finishing this MBA. And so that's how I ended up moving from the business side into the legal side and actually became very, um, and you would appreciate this, very uh, enthralled with the study of the law. And as you might guess, as an engineer, I glommed onto the regulatory courses, avoided torts at all possible causes because they're so mushy, squishy things, right? But regulatory law, tax law, you know, any kind of regulatory law was, it was like problem solving, right? It's just, you know, the rules, you play the game, you parse the code, away you go. Um, so it, the, what I would discover in subsequent years, Nathaniel, was is that the study of, of law, of jurisprudence, was far more engaging than the actual drudgeries of practice. But it, that's how I ended up with then sort of a, a, a a 360 degree view of technology as a business, right? From the technical side, from the marketing and management of, of the product lifecycle side of it to the legal side of it and the intellectual property. That's absolutely fascinating. So uh, 
Where were you practicing law as you began that? Were you practicing from within the company? Within no. The company? So, yeah. So good question. So it was kind of a combination of things. You start out doing clerkships in law school, right? And I had the opportunity to do intern clerkships within the corporate setting. So I was at a large company at the time called Computer Vision, um, based out there in Boston, had a research lab in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, that was kind of like next door to Tektronix. I was bouncing between Sun Microsystems and Computer Vision. In fact, that's where my my U.S. patents came up. Working in, in the, the the those two, Computer Vision was working on computer aided engineering, computer aided design. So I'm in my graphics wheelhouse. Uh, we were doing um, systems for electronic uh, design, so we call VLSI chip design, whatnot. So a lot of intensive graphics, a lot of intensive documents, et cetera, et cetera. So I was doing uh, internship in in-house patent prosecution. Uh, and and I had two patent applications that were being prosecuted, uh, for which I was one of the inventors, uh, co-inventors, and so that was part of that matriculation. And then so I, wait, so you're both a lawyer and doing technical stuff at the same time? I, I'm in. I'm in, just to be clear, I'm in law school in my third year, doing my clerkship while maintaining a dual appointment in the R and D lab. What's really cool is that I'm able to bring to the to the legal side and the lawyers real intricate details about what's going on in the technology and the code development so that we can get the best possible patent protection. As you know, patent law is basically property law in a, in a, in a sense, right? And so we're trying to figure out where are the borders. In other words, the claims. How can we draft claims and a description of an invention that will get us what we call the broadest possible coverage, right? That was a really unique opportunity for me, whereas most of my colleagues in law school were just doing the drudge of straight through clerkship you know, paper chase in the law libraries for the summer sort of thing. So I was indeed going to law school while I was working. I had that ability because of, of I was at, uh, at Northwestern at Lewis and Clark and we had a night program, a day program. And I was able to straddle that so I could work and, and go to law school at the same time. I eventually would join a small firm, a boutique firm that was exclusively intellectual property and technology licensing called Marger Johnson, McCallum and Stolowitz. And the fun thing there is you could look it up. Um, I was, uh, we, we brought the first law firm onto the internet, techlaw.com, T-E-C-H-L-A-W.com. It's still there. It still lives. It's still Marjorie Johnson, I believe. And the name has evolved over the years. But we brought them onto the internet. I actually had to go through with, with a buddy of mine at BBN, uh, BBN uh, to help get an application in on the basis at the time, because they weren't just handing out .coms to, to people, right? Why were you wanting a, a domain name? And, and we were able to convince them that we were in educational capacities and intellectual property law firm. That's a bit of a rabbit hole, but uh, spent a little bit of time there, which is where I got to do work because uh, I brought uh, clients with me, if you will, as I left the technology world and entered the practice of law full time. Um, I had the unique opportunity as a young associate to do what we call portable, to bring clients with me because they said, oh, we know this guy. We've worked with them. Sure, we'll bring our law work to your firm. So the firm was very opportunistic in grabbing me for that capacity. So that meant that we picked up Next Computer as a client because a couple of their engineers were in Portland, Oregon at Reed College. Uh, one thing led to another. I realized that the practice of law was was a little bit more boring than I'd hoped. I really wanted to be in-house counsel, but I was too young to do that. I didn't take law school straight, straight out of school. This was sort of a second career. Um, so, uh, I eventually, uh, ended up going back into tech. And what was inherent systems? Ah, you're doing your homework. So, uh, so inherent technologies was a client of Marcher Johnson, McCollum and Stolowitz. And, um, inherent was a software company. You'll appreciate this an object-oriented software company, because the one language I forgot to tell you that got me my first job was I was one of the guys who decided he fell in love with a language called Smalltalk. 
In fact, that's why I went down to Park. I was doing work with underneath uh, Brad Cox and Adele Goldberg as a young, you know, uh, a software engineer. So inherent, um, as you might guess now, object-oriented software. That was kind of uh, how inherent got started. They were a client having some trouble paying their bills. I took a leave of absence from the law firm to try to get inherent on its feet. The rest uh, became history. Inherent Technologies became inherent.com. We quickly evolved uh, from the next step work into realizing that what was rising up was the World Wide Web. So on a visit to Europe, I had some friends from the World Wide Web Consortium and ended up over at CERN and was looking at uh, early HTTP servers. And you know, you know what the first HTTP servers were built on. The next cube. Were they? Yes, sir. Yeah, I did the, not know that. The O30 cube was some of the first servers at CERN. And so when I came back from my trip, I told the folks at Inherent, we were a small team, about eight at the time. We would grow to about 35. I said, I got to tell you, I think the future is in the web. I think this is the way we're going to be able to communicate massive amounts of content and data and interactions. And uh, we should pick a niche that we know more than anyone else. And that was the law. And so Inherent.com was the first firm to exclusively build worldwide websites and other internet services for the legal profession. How did that go? It went well. We ended up ultimately uh, selling part of the business. Well, it, what happened was there was during that whole era where companies were being bought up and things were going go-go's. And it was 1997. And I had met Roberta Katz, who was the corporate general counsel of Netscape. And she had seen a presentation at the American Bar Association. She, they offered to acquire the team out of Inherent, and we folded it into uh, to Netscape. One thing led to another. I ended up running strategic marketing and business development for Netscape and Europe for the legal and insurance industry. I think it's fascinating how people's careers develop. I mean, there is no predicting from earlier on that strategic marketing at a browser company would be where you would be headed. It's what a long, strange trip it's been, right? <laughs> um, how, how was that? It's got to have been a pretty exciting time there, right? Uh, oh my gosh. I have to tell you, Roberta Katz was the greatest boss I ever had, um, that I was overwhelmed by the quality of that team. Um, got to know a lot of the, the, the key players, um, early guys in. Um, I certainly didn't have a two-digit number, but I knew a lot of the guys that did. And with my joint appointment to strategic marketing and legal, we got to see how this business was exploding and where it was going to go. So I was responsible for the worldwide property casualty insurance industry and the legal profession and helping them come to the internet. And yeah, it was 25 by eight. I mean, there was stuff happening all the time. And, and I had, because I was living and working in London, um, uh, two weeks at a time and coming back for a week in, in Mountain View in Portland, uh, I constantly had this, this churn going on of seeing the world from, from both sides. I have to tell you real quickly, um, it was amazing. I remember uh, giving a pre presentation at an insurance company called Yenzidige up in Oslo, Norway, um, right on the on the 21st of December at the their Weihnachten uh, celebration, and uh, I walked into this, this 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 auditorium that was filled with over 700 people, and just walking in, being Netscape versus Microsoft. Right. And they had the big rising in on a massive screen behind me, standing ovation, cheering, because like we were some liberator bringing them a new way of, of, of computing. It was overwhelming. I've heard that's the story. I don't know how true it is that Netscape 
trying to rebuild from scratch, fell behind and missed the opportunity to be the kind of leading browser. What's the real story? What happened? Why did it not beat Microsoft or others out there? Happy to say a thing or two about that as long as you promise that we can eventually get to how this technology applies to elections. But these are fun memories. I'm only one person, one view of this uh, in in a legal department at Netscape that you know had two dozen lawyers and and whatnot. And by the way, one of those other lawyers is on our board. So if you ever want to have that discussion in depth, our guy Peter Harder is on our board. He could give you all the inside of the Microsoft Netscape browser war battles. I think that um, we were a victim of our own success um, at a very early age in carving out what was happening. Right. We certainly had to do some clean room work to make sure that, that the Netscape Navigator was its own browser and, and couldn't be claimed by others. I think that um, it was a matter of making it up as you go. I mean, a lot of us who are at Netscape, we call ourselves Netscapees, uh, like to say that, you know, we're to blame for this mess. If we had known then that you wouldn't be anybody unless you were somebody at somewhere.com and everything would have a URL to it, every bus board, billboard, and TV commercial. I think we all would have just quit and said, no, no, this is not what we want to do. This wasn't the intention ever. The commercialization of the internet was um, was something that just took off and, and you had to just ride that storm out, right? The timing of it, the only thing we could do was pull the ripcord, and, and this might be a perfect segue, um, was to recognize one day that uh, Eric Raymond had it right. I'm referring to the Cathedral and the Bazaar, of course, um, that that famous essay, um, and that we should set the source code free to the browser. If you think about razor blades and razors, right, uh, you understand the browser com- compared to what we were really working on, which was all the backend services from LDAP uh, on down. So that was a seminal decision to set the code free. It was a bit of a nuclear option. It would ultimately devastate uh, Microsoft. Funny to note that wasn't it just last week or a couple of weeks ago that IE was finally formally shut down forever. It was fully deprecated. Was it? Internet Explorer is gone. Uh, it's now complete history. Take me quickly through the next couple things you did to get to the founding story of, of the Institute. Well, when we finally laundered the company to Steve Case, um, and I affectionately refer to it as a laundering effort because, of course, you know he was the he was the bag man and was supposed to keep all the people and 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 Net Center and sold off the technology to iPlanet, which was the only legally way we could get out of the hard Scott Rodino uh, claims of antitrust. We wanted to sell everything directly to Sun Microsystems, but we couldn't. Um, following that, a number of us made a conscious decision to not join AOL. Um, and we went in a couple different directions, uh, with, with, with medical technology, healthcare startups and whatnot that got me into the venture capital community. And it was 2006 when I was doing work as an entrepreneur in residence. And we were sort of talking about market disintermediation and how you find new deals and et cetera, et cetera. And we were looking at malformed dysfunctional markets and it was 2006. The midterms just happened. There was a mess in Cuyahoga County. Once again, the Merck, uh, of course, San Jose Mercury News and Chronicle and other people were calling some of us and saying, hey, what's the problem with, with these computers being you, you know, used in, in, in voting, these e-voting machines? And we said, well, they're personal computers. What do you expect? And so this was, of course, following the Help America Vote Act in 2002, well, which was an amelioration for the Chad Fest of 2000 in Florida. Today, you, you, you talk about hanging chads and people want to know why did Chad get hung? Um, and back then, of course, it was about punch cards and lever machines and using computers to try and prove that. We looked at that and we said, wow, we've got a hugely malformed dysfunctional market. Why is that? Why is that? So it turns out that voting technology 
is an inherently partisan backwater of government IT. It's the last bastion of any hope for innovation because it is a poster child for an oligopoly, for a malformed dysfunctional market. Malformed in the sense that the Help America Vote Act created the regulations that controlled how machines got certified, how machines got built and, and, and marketed, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, the Help America Vote Act or HAVA also set out $3 billion of taxpayer money to get all the states to convert to these, these computers. For the manufacturers who were largely manufacturers of ATM machines at the time, right, building computers for voting, this was the full employment act for any ATM machine manufacturer. So they started designing really great machines, right, that could be trustworthy. They found out that they couldn't sell them because they were too damn expensive to build the kind of high assurance that they needed. So they went back to the drawing board and did the only thing they could do. They started using off-the-shelf personal computers and putting applications on top of them in a traditional client-server model, right? All right, so the malformation came that anytime you have a regulation into a market, you're going to have the whole process of making those regs. The big vendors get in, they serve their own interests, you create high barriers to entry, high switching costs, you basically control the market for your own benefit. It would They would ultimately screw themselves on that, but long story short, that was the malformation. The dysfunction was a wholesale mismatch in buyers and sellers. Nathaniel, think about it. The county's budgets twist in the political winds of appropriations. How about put it that way? For to, and and sellers don't wake up every morning asking, "What's the government going to buy for me today?" Because the government doesn't buy anything; they procure it. There's a whole body of regulatory law called procurement law, and it's designed to protect taxpayers' dollars by creating supposedly a highly transparent, highly competitive market where. You bid, you submit requests for proposals and vendors bid on them and an award is won, right? But it's on the least cost method. And the problem here is it's a race to the bottom. If buyers don't have much money to spend, sellers aren't inclined to do much work in innovation. That's why you have a malformed, dysfunctional market where innovation amounts to a guarantee of spare parts. And today, security amounts to a strategy of patch and pray. You have talked about this before, I can see. Who are the vendors in that space? Who are the key companies that have found themselves in the position of malforming that market, as you put it? Yeah, well, they, they certainly helped to its malformation. So when we first looked at it, there were about 10 vendors, and we estimated that in about 10 years, there'd probably be about you know six or five. Turns out today, 16 years later, three vendors control 90% of America's voting system infrastructure. Those same three vendors have a fingerprint on nearly 75% of the global market. Those three vendors are Elections Systems and Services, ES&S, um, Dominion, of course, which was a foreign company in Canada that found its way consolidated in the United States, and then Hart InterCivic, um, the third of the three, the smaller of the, of the three, probably um, the one that's most pragmatic and, and closest to wanting to do the right thing, if you will. ESNS is the largest of them. Now, there's a second tier of smaller players like uh, that are up and coming, like Clear Ballot. But the three vendors who have federally certified and state certified systems are those three, the only three. And so those are the only choices that um, America has. All 10,000 jurisdictions across 3,300 counties, 50 states, and five territories. What's wrong with them? <laughs> Proprietary black box technology based on 90s computing architecture using hardware that is not antique, it is now obsolete, okay? There's, 
and this is the problem. I'm really glad we're having this conversation because unfortunately, post 2020, it's hard to have this conversation because everybody assumes, oh, you must be an election denier or something. But the fact of the matter is, regardless of how much security patching and praying that we do to hold the bailiwick, this thing together, we're still using an outdated, outmoded architecture for voting systems. And the problem is there is an inherent design flaw at a hardware level that no amount of building the next generation of the same thing is going to fix. You see, every piece of hardware in the system is inherently modifiable. If I have a radio card, a USB port, if I've got any means of introducing anything into that machine, I cannot with a straight face look at you and say, I can guarantee you the integrity of that hardware. It's impossible. So it's an inherent design flaw, and it's especially in, in a design flaw today, Nathaniel, because we have declared, thanks to Jay Johnson in 2017, that election technology is a m- part of critical infrastructure. It's part of the 16 sectors of critical infrastructure, which means these are national security operating assets, which means that these are supposed to be high assurance, fault tolerant application-specific, purpose-built devices, and they're not. They're personal computing technology, they're scanners, tablets, all using what I call a Wintel architecture. If that's too uh, jargony for the audience, I know you know what it means. Um, It's Windows and Intel, Intel hardware, Windows operating system. I think there's a difference between theoretically vulnerable and actually in practice getting abused or having votes changed. Do you think that we've had a problem to this point as vulnerable theoretically as this tech is votes being changed by external action or whatever? There's a question of potential versus probability. We live in a 1% world when we're talking about national security assets. I should probably right now explain that that Several of us at the OSINT Institute at one time or another have been detached to the national security apparatus. Some of us with a with, um, higher level of security clearance, if you will, or confidentiality. So I have some guardrails about what I can talk about. With that in mind, I'll, I'll try to skim that guardrail as close as I can. The really intellectually honest answer, Nathaniel, is we don't know. And we can't prove it. That may be tough to hear, but it's true. Now, that responds to, is the potential there? We don't know. We think it is, yes. The probability that it happened is non-existent in 2020, could have potentially been existent in 2016. But again, there's no way for us to prove it. And I can explain why that's the case and why there's a big difference between 16 and 20. But the fact of the matter is there is a potential for a compromise. We know how to do it. We know it's been done in other parts of the world, and I'll have to leave it at that. We know that the biggest risk isn't an actual compromise or hack, and this is really important. The biggest risk in our mind, and we're about to issue a a statement in this regard involving some stuff going on in Georgia, the biggest risk is that the potential for that can be used as catalyst for disinformation and misinformation campaigns. And, and no matter how much you try to build a machine, you're always going to have somebody point at and say, I swear up and down that machine didn't do it, what it said it did, right? So our position is, yeah, the risk is really low 
in U.S. elections based on how we're structured today and based on the security mechanisms we've put in. Chris Krebs had it absolutely right. But as long as there is a potential there, and as long as we know there are foreign adversaries with unlimited budgets and enormous motivation, we have a risk there. We should end it. And our theory is, is that if we put an end to that risk, we're going to switch the Klieg lights away from the machines and on to the processes and people. You know, I, I was going to bring up Chris Krebs before, and so happy you mentioned it. I mean, what I heard uh, was that between 2017 and 2020, there was a lot of effort within the government to secure the election infrastructure. You're correct. And that they, and, and that the general conclusion is that it's in 2020, it was more secure than it had been. And that, you know, and that they weren't too worried about it. That was, that was sort of the public statements on it. And this was kind of contrary to what the disgraced former president was saying, but like his administration had worked really hard to secure it. And what I've heard is it did a pretty good job of it. Do you think something different? No, I think uh, they're correct in, in, in having secured what they could secure, right? So, um, you know, from Albert sensors to other pieces of technology to other practices and protocols, there was a Herculean effort put forward based on the vulnerabilities that we saw in 2016. Um, that's when I was originally brought in. Um, I worked at the National Security Council, the Department of Homeland Security, and, and FBI. A lot of effort was taken to secure the infrastructure such as it is, right? Um, a couple of things I want to point out, because what you're going to find is that besides being hugely pro-democracy and huge team democracy here, we're also really rapidly intellectually honest. And so we sometimes say things that people don't want to hear, but can't avoid the fact that it's what it is. The statement about the security of the election, and we've, we've blogged about this, you could find it, was issued by a consortium of folks to which the Department of Homeland Security and CISA signed off on, right? Um, but this was their statement. And we need to remember that ISAC is actually comprised of the vendors themselves. So with that in mind, um, CISA weighed in with what they knew and what they could disclose and what is unclassified. And, it, and, and the statements were as they are, and they're correct. I don't know if I think it's the most secure election ever because we don't know what we don't know, but for the stuff that we could measure and the stuff that we could track and the stuff that we could block, yeah, we stopped a lot of what could have happened in 2016. Dude, when we say we stopped it, does that mean we know about efforts to do things or does it just mean we barricaded a lot of entrances and we don't, and nobody actually tried or what do we know in that regard that you can say? I want to say yes. Barricades, certainly. Stop things. You might very well conclude that. I couldn't possibly comment. I talked to a guy, I don't know if you know him, David Leichman at Microsoft. I know that Microsoft, you know, part of that uh, Wintel company that makes part of that, that they were working on this particular issue. Do you have a sense of how well they did or how much they were involved? I think they did very well. They were one of the big players in making certain that things were, were locked down. Bear in mind that things can be locked down. It doesn't stop people from knocking, right? It seems like everything we do that is online, that are that is technological, is vulnerable, whether to a person stealing it from you, in you know, like 
reaching and grabbing your phone or going through the internet to get to you. Absolutely. And I liken it to a human being. We're all susceptible to germs and diseases and illnesses every day of the life. If we take care of ourselves, if we properly have proper nutrition, proper health and fitness, we get vaccinated for things to provide the necessary firewalls, we're just fine. But if you want to stop and think about it, we as human beings live in a world that there are about a thousand things that could kill us instantly if we weren't protected. And the digital world is the same way. There's lots of things out there that could destroy things. You have to take the steps to securify it and in some cases privatize it. Uh, and I don't mean that from an economic sense or business sense. I mean, literally the process of making sure that what you have is private. Yes, uh, there were a lot, there's a lot of, there was a lot of Katie barring doors and there was a lot of observing stuff that was happening and being able to stop it before, um, it, it resulted in anything. Um, the level to which things were foreign versus domestic, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't have any direct knowledge of, and the stuff I do know about, I can't comment on, but I can tell you that. What we live in is a world where there is a possibility that something can happen, and we ask, why can't we just fix it? Why can't we solve it? Why can't we just eliminate that as a basis for raising a claim? It seems like a tricky line a little bit to walk between not wanting to aid the conspiracy theorists and election deniers and the people who just imagine that because a result wasn't what they wanted, that somebody must have rigged it, and making clear that there might be a better way. How do you think about that, walking that line? Yeah, we don't worry too much about that line for the simple matter that we are focused on ensuring that elections are verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent in process. And our belief is, is that it's about trust. It's about belief. And the way we get there is by moving away from black boxes and towards glass boxes. Let's get into that a little bit. So we, you know, as you've been very clear, there's an installed base of the black box model. And you have been building, I guess it's always in process technology, you've put together an alternate option for election technology. Is that change something that can happen incrementally? Does it have to happen by federal law and you know you replace everything all at once? Say what you've built and then say how we might switch over to what you've built. Sure. The watchwords here are going to be evolution, migration, ecosystem. These are going to be the watchwords of this part of our conversation. So we recognized early on that the software layer of voting machinery and all election administration equipment. Let me let me just real take a quick pause to stop here and set some understanding on this because a lot of people, even the media, don't get this. So there is a world of election administration. It is an entire ecosystem of technology to administer elections. Um, so you have election administration systems. That's like the superset. A major subset of that is a voting system. But when you hear voting technology and election technology, technically two different things, all part of the same family, right? Voting is the casting and counting of ballots. Elections administration covers everything from voter registration to ballot design and layout to poll books to poll book generation to the mothership called the election management system, by the way, the vulnerable weak spot of the existing architecture. And then, of course, you have results reporting, analytics, certification, right? 
So all of that's in there. The the superset even extends on other stuff that are out of bounds for us today, which is uh, technology to do districting, for example, right? A census technology, all of that. It's all part of the administration of democracy. So we're focused on the election administration ecosystem. And, and the reason for that, Nathaniel, is, is you'll appreciate this. We have an operating systems bias. We, we kind of have an operating systems view of the world, if you will. And what we realized early on, and which is why, you know, we're talking about, I think, one of the strongest, most mature technology teams in the world in elections technology is this little nonprofit institute in Palo Alto. We're applying four decades of learning into this and realized that we needed to start over. And when one of the original grantors to our project, besides the co-founders, a gentleman named Mitch, Mitch Kapoor, said, you know, we, we decided that, that, that in that first conversation, whatever we do, we're not going to build a Smithsonian exercise. We're not going to build the woulda, coulda, shoulda machine. We're going to build something that gets adopted, adapted, and deployed. So immediately we went out and we found the best software architects and systems architects we could get. Because I want to point out here, Nathaniel, this technology, the technology challenges and issues of voting systems today and elections administration systems is not a giant technical leap in some, you know, chip level design, right? There's some hardware integrity stuff we can talk about, but this is really a systems engineering problem, right? And I'll give you a quick example. The mothership is the EMS, the election management system. It's the Swiss army knife of election administration. And EMS is a computer that runs on a desk in the back office of a registrar. Okay. That application sits on that Windows desktop. It does three or four things. It configures poll books. So it downloads voter registration data and figures out which poll book gets populated with which names. It configures touch screens for ballot marking devices or touch screens if you need it. And it does tally and tabulation. Now, any high assurance, fault tolerant, mission critical computing world knows that you're never going to concentrate those three things on a single app, on a single machine in the back office. And the real world is that is a Windows machine, Windows 2000, desktop PC with cables snaking across the floor into overheated server closets. And that machine sits there and the registrar uses it for marriage licenses, fishing licenses, boating licenses, hunting licenses, and everything else you can imagine to do in her little office. And the EMS sits on that machine. And she swears up and down that machine is never connected to the internet and has to sort of kick the RJ45 cable under the desk so you don't notice that every so often she plugs the damn thing into the wall to quickly download a form from the internet. But I swear to God, I was only connected for 30 seconds. It's probably good. How many of those machines are there? Pervasive throughout the country. How many? Guess. Well, uh, at the very worst case, there'd be one for every jurisdiction. So that would be at least 10,000. Well, so there's 3,000 counties. What is a jurisdiction? That so within, within the 3,300 counties, um, depending on what happened with the census, um, <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's 3,300 counties. You have um, several jurisdictions. Jurisdictions are broken up by counties, mostly, is the general townships, et cetera. So you're looking at least, I'm, I'm just going to guess here, and then I'm uh, wishing I had some of my buddies here from OSA who know a lot of this stuff cold, cold. Let's just say for the sake of this discussion, they're probably somewhere in the order of 10,000. Is, is that a better, in some ways, a better situation where somebody who needs to hack the election has to get to lots of machines that are differently configured, that are running different companies' software? Is there some security in the, in the mess that's there? 
Absolutely not. I'm going to, I'm going to point out that in addition to big lies, there's also big misunderstandings. Okay. So this notion of a highly diffused, balkanized by design, distributed world of devices does, has nothing to do with the problem because you see, I don't need a widespread broad-based attack to throw an election. I only need a single jurisdiction in a single county of a contentious state, swing state, to cause one small problem to swing an election the way things work in the United States. I don't need a broad-based attack. And, and by the way, I only need the threat of that attack, right? A quick example I like to give when I'm teaching um, uh, election cybersecurity to, uh, to election officials. Um, you know, at the penultimate hour in a very contentious district of a swing state, when the line is out the door, down the street and around the corner, you've got an hour left before polls close. You know how I'm going to just completely derail that election? I'm going to phone in the bomb threat. And by the time that building is cleared and that line that snaked down the street has disappeared and everything's been overturned and the bomb squad found the empty can in a, in a paper bag, what now of my election? Where did my voters go? It's 11 o'clock. I'm in Indiana. So this notion that, you know, a highly diffused distributed system with all these different machines is just a misunderstanding. First off, all of the machines are of a very similar flavor. If you know how to drive one of them, you know how to drive all of them. Secondly, again, I don't need a broad-based attack. I only need a very targeted attack, as I suggested to you. So that's why the case of these old EMS machines out there in volume is not the issue. It's, it's that they sit there individually in every one of these jurisdictions. Uh, and this EMS software is highly vulnerable. There are a lot of stories about where it's been and what it's seen. But let's just suffice to say that by design, that's a problem, right? You wouldn't build an EMS to do that. So, so to your question of, about what we're building and what we're doing, these are example problems that we're trying to address. And we started at the data level and worked all the way up with a software architecture that took us seven years to actually get it to the state that it's at now, subject to several U.S. patents that we will assign to the public to make sure it's a public property. We're building the people's voting system. Along the way, we've been building lots of other constituent components. For example, you may not know this, but for the last 10 years, we have been the technology partner for Rock the Vote and all third-party registrars in the United States who use an open-source code base that we design, build, and maintain for third-party registration, voter registration. There are several other pieces of the ecosystem that we're working on, right, um, at, at an application layer, at the operating system layer, if you will, and down deep into the internals of securing the devices through corporate partnerships with AWS and Red Hat, uh, et cetera. So there's a lot of work there that's been underway for some time. It's evolutionary. It's migratory because, no, you don't need a Franken switch that one day you throw the switch and everybody's using something different. In fact, Nathaniel, one of the principled architectural decisions we made, which came out of our work at Apple, Sun, and Next, is that this operating system mentality, this approach builds a framework of software so that you don't have to adopt the whole thing. You can adopt the parts of it that you want and you can evolve. You can re swap out your EMS machines. You can swap out ballot marking devices. You can swap out scanners for the new technology that we're building. And here's the key I think will help the most. The thing that we're building is called ElectOS. And, and there's several other projects that, that we have, but ElectOS is sort of the granddaddy of our work. ElectOS is to voting machines as Android is to smartphones. Now, I want to be careful there because you and I both know that Android has its own security problems, especially with the App Store, et cetera, Google Play. But the bottom line is if you just want a rough metaphor, we're building ElectOS 
an ElectOS for voting equipment and election administration is like Android for, for mobile devices. It's like Linux for enterprise computing. So we're building the guts. You sort of made the comparison between a glass box and a black box. Is your current uh, work already out there that people can look at it? Have you had it open along the way or is it something that you plan to release later on? So there's a little bit, the answer is yes, there's a little bit of both there. Everything that goes into production is 100% pure open source available under either our license, it's called the OPL, which is a derivative of the Mozilla public license, or the GPL for people who are not in the commercial side, just want to do academic research on it. Um, we have code that has not been moved from private repositories to public repositories yet um, for several reasons. Some of them I can get into, some of them I can't that have to do with sort of security issues and other things. But everything ultimately ends up 100% transparent in terms of uh, the source code and the systems architecture and the designs and everything else that we're doing. Uh, again, that's the way you build a glass box. I can imagine someone thinking that exposing your code to malefactors would enable them to, to get in or f find a security flaw in a way that a uh, something that you, they can't read the code, wouldn't. Like, why is it the case uh, that something that is open out there could be more secure than something that is hidden? Right. So the, we get this question a lot. It's a fair question uh, and a good one. First off, I just want to point out, and, and I, I know you know this, but a hacker does not need source code to hack a system. In fact, they almost never need the source code. It never actually helps them in any material way. Hacking and compromising systems have to do with their configuration and all the infrastructure around them, right? 80% of all attacks begin with a fish. They all start with an email that gets that allows a fish, you to get a P-H-I-S-H. Yes, 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 a fish fish, right. Because um, <laughs> so, otherwise the image is hilarious. But anyway. It is though, isn't it, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, trout works in some cases, bass better than others. Um, but but this particular pH fish um, is where 80% of all hacks begin. We get a compromise that allows us to get into a system. Once I get into a system, I can control its configuration. I can extract data. I can do anything that I want, right? Because the the software is only as safe as its configuration and the, and the infrastructure around it to protect its operation. That's point number one. Point number two, and... For your folks in the audience, for your ardent soft, uh, open source software folks, um, free software folks, et cetera, you're not going to like me when I say this, but you know in your heart it's true. Open source is neither more secure nor less secure than closed source. It's just that, as Eric Raymond used to say, and we've said it for years, when a thousand eyes are looking, all bugs are obvious. When you have closed source and closed proprietary software, you have to trust the vendor that when they find an exploit, they're going to do something about it. In our world, we say, no, the code is open for everyone to inspect. It's subject to peer review. Um, it's in a kind of a continuous uh, evolution. And so um, exploits are trapped quickly and remedied. Again, most exploits having nothing to do with the actual internals of the source code itself, but with its configuration. So um, we say that software open source is neither more secure than less secure. And that's simply because... You have to apply the same diligence, right? There's no magic to open source, right? Building open source and building closed source is the same thing. Because why? Because open source is one of two things. It's a licensing mechanism or it's a distribution mechanism. 
Now, my lawyer's hat's on, I apologize, but that's all open source is really about. It's either how we build it or how we distribute it. But it's still code being built. And I can put a software engineer in front of a piece of code that's destined for open source and put him in front of a piece of code that's going to be locked down black box and get the same quality code, right? Nothing magically changed their ability to code, except that I will say that when we're doing it in an open source manner with paired programmers, et cetera, we have more eyes on the subject and we got more getting done faster and we're finding things and exploits quicker. Uh, and that for us, um, because of its transparency quotient means a lot. I mean, you talk about a thousand eyes, but, uh, and that's kind of partially why I asked the question about whether it's already open because a thousand eyes, it's like something that doesn't happen very often in the open source world that you, uh, accomplish that, you know, you, maybe you do with Linux, um, but you don't with, uh, numerous small projects. And now of course, you know, I guess one can expect and hope that with election administration that you would generate so many interested parties and people who really were intently looking for flaws that you'd have those thousand eyes. And a thousand is probably not nearly enough. But where along the way uh, are you in feeling assured that there aren't bugs and uh, other and vulnerabilities that that having enough eyes would find out. Right, right. So, so of course, the thousand eyes is metaphorical, but um, we believe that the topic of election administration um, is popular enough. And we just got back from an international conference in Copenhagen where this was really borne out uh, at the Global Democracy Summit, that there is tremendous interest in understanding the technology and making it glass box so that we can uh, increase uh, trust. Because because as you know, trust is a combination of communication times transparency. So the transparency quotient is huge. Um, where we are in process is ensuring that the design and engineering and the prototypes that we're building of all this stuff meets or exceeds the specifications that we've worked with elections officials to derive. Once we have that down, then we begin the process of peer review public vetting. We're actually to every extent possible seeking to implement what we call formal methods which is a computer science discipline. Again, I know you're familiar with this. We work with a very high caliber software company that does this called Galois um, to actually prove the correctness of the software through formal methods. Once we have gotten to that stage, then the key is ensuring opportunity for public vetting, including public peer review, including the possibility of bug bounties and, and other competitions and things to vet the code. Because eventually, as you know, we've got to get this code base certified. It has to eventually be federally certified. So as we get the project to that level of critical mass of completion, we intend to have an enormous amount of public vetting on this code. Um, one of the reasons that we're working sort of in a, a semi-closed environment right now for purposes of engineering is we want to have a chance to do a complete clean room development of everything we, that we're developing um, or designing and then present that out. Um, so we're trying to avoid getting into uh, tussles with people about whether there's intellectual property being stolen or other things like that and being allowed to do the core work that we have to do in working with the stakeholders um, who are elections administrators who need this stuff to be verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent. Once that's accomplished, you will see the code is completely available. People can look at stuff anytime. And you already can today. You can go to GitHub today and look at a number of our repos today uh, at the Trust the Vote project. 
and C code that's already out there on the public side um, that's available. And we have people contributing all the time pull requests to to make changes or to, to to fix things that we spot. Our work with AWS is very good in this regard too, because some of our technology can be cloud-based. The voting system cannot be, but lots of the election administration technology can be. So we have folks already contributing in that regard and more will come. But I mean, one of the reasons I'm talking with you, right, is to begin that process of raising awareness, increasing knowledge and catalyzing consideration for what we're doing. We need talent. We need funding to finish. Uh, we've got a closing window to do that, given you know, the, the the inevitability of people having to decide what they're going to replace their equipment with as it completely ages out. So we're on a bit of a race here to get this done. But along the way, I can assure you that our intention here and our plan, and we will execute on it because it's embedded in our mission, is to ensure maximum transparency in everything we're doing. So let's assume that you can finish building the the glass box system that you that you've been working on and that it is provably superior to the existing arrangements it's a long way still and maybe a harder road to getting the government to getting the country to switch over to what you've got that's conventional wisdom yes well i mean the proof will be in the pudding you've been going since 2007 what have you learned about the barriers to this change? Right. So this is the beautiful part. I wouldn't have bet, you know, a, a third of my career on this if we didn't think we can be the disruptor to cause some massively scalable change here. Disruption is not a, a word that elections officials love to hear. Uh, we're not disrupting their world. We're disrupting the economics and the market and the industrial organization of, of this. And here's how we do it. People often ask about how are you actually going to get this into production? I could see the adoption and adaptation deployment model, but how does, let's start with adoption. How does it work? So one of the most important things to understand uh, about, about this is there is no partisan decision on the acquisition of voting equipment or election administration technology, Right. And by the way, this is a state's issue, right? It's not a federal issue. There's no federal mandate on, on this because two articles and seven amendments to the Constitution make clear that elections are a state's right and states matter and with, with a federal interest, of course. So the federal government does have interest and they can sort of encourage behavior, but they can't uh, make decisions and control the stuff. So it's a state house decision. State houses don't choose vendors. They appropriate money to acquire technology. The money is not a, we're only going to give you this money if you buy ES&S sort of thing. So this is a procurement process and it works on generally the least cost method. So one of the hallmarks of what we're building is a result that, that produces voting systems that should be about one third the cost they are today. So if we do this right, not only can we dramatically improve usability, security, reliability, et cetera. But we can also reduce taxpayer cost to deploy it. That means you can get more machines. You can have more polling places. You can do other things with that money. But the procurement process then is one based on a competitive bidding process. Second point to make here is that people don't buy Androids. They buy Samsungs. They don't buy iOSs. They buy iPads and iPhones, right? OS is the soul of the machinery. And either the existing incumbents will see the uh, potential of moving from their proprietary system to ElectOS open system, or new, uh, new vendors, new, new producers will enter the market. 
because we're shifting that business model away from proprietary black box systems to a systems integration model where we're using off-the-shelf hardware with some necessary security modifications we can talk about and this open source software put onto it. So the business model shifts into one of adaptation, right? Because every county has their own way of doing stuff. And so there has to be a local adaptation. So it becomes a systems integration business model. So the second point again then is we're not selling a voting machine. We're giving away the enabling technology for others to build finished systems. So what would happen in the adoption phase? If our evangelism and our stakeholder community relations work is successful, state registrars or county registrars will let new RFPs to acquire a new voting system. And as part of that RFP, Nathaniel, they're going to require a system that's based on ElectOS. That's a provision. That's probably our, if we have any, if we have any hurdle, that would be the hurdle. And the beautiful part about that hurdle is that we've already cleared it. Why? Well, because I think we cleverly realized early on that we didn't, we knew a lot about technology. We didn't know a damn thing about elections. So we went to the stakeholders, elections officials, and we began to learn everything that they do. We began to be there for them as their R&D lab. We got tacit approval for what we're doing on the basis that we're not a vendor. We're not a commercial organization. We're not going to upset their procurement processes by talking to us. We are a nonprofit research and development and education institute there to improve the technology of elections. And so so they were willing to talk with us. And what they have told us, they being over 200 of them from 26 states representing over 56% of the Electoral College, what they have told us is what we need to build systems that are verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent, the four corners of trustworthiness. So we have tacit approval. We have had dozens of officials over the years say, please get this finished. I need an alternative to what I have today. I want to let out an RFP that says, build vendor, somebody come deliver a system that's ElectOS based. So we're not selling phones. We're selling the operating system to the phone and we're not selling it. We're giving it away, right? So now I've, I've covered the adoption phase. I've told you a little bit about adaptation. Deployment then becomes a matter of, of those contracts winning. And the more contracts around the country that win that are ElectOS based, the more the change takes hold. And along the way, what we have done is that we are building other pieces of the ecosystem that do not require certification so that eventually people can evolve into a pure ElectOS-based system. They don't have to do it all at once. And they don't have to do it um, you know, at one big price packaged um, uh, procurement. They can do it in stages. They've got to fix their voter registration systems. They have to replace their poll books. They have to get a better elections results reporting system. You see, they have to do all these pieces. Our job is to ensure that we are building the public's technology. And the reason we're doing that very simply, Nathaniel, is we have to get to a new platform, a new level of innovation, right? Think of it like automobiles, right? So the fossil fuel combustion engine has really reached the end of its useful life. And what's the next platform? Well, batteries, EVs, right? And so who are the companies building that? Well, it started with Tesla, and now everybody is building EVs. And so we're moving to the new platform. Where is that level of innovation happening inside elections? Nowhere. Nowhere. There's no commercial business model to do it. So they're not incentivized to do it. Government can't do it. And so our project is making it happen. What are you seeing as the time frame for this? And where along that are you? Have you had some adoption already? of elect OS? Where are you in terms of getting it done enough that you can? 
And what do you think is the likely or hopeful time frame to be substantially moving over if that can indeed happen? Sure, sure. So this is a conversation a mutual friend of ours, an advisor to us, Joe Trippi, and I have all the time this challenge. And here, here's how it works. We've got a good story to tell here. So we declared the the ElectOS voting system software architecture engineering complete late last year. And what that means is, is that all the experimentation, prototyping, design and redesign and proof of concepts are done, and we're now ready to build the production version. We have to build a first reference implementation, and we'll have a hardware partner to help us do that. I'm not ready to name that partner yet, um, but you can imagine we're all about US-based and American companies. And then we've got to get a certification, either at a state level initially, at a state that's doing its own certification, or the federal level so that it applies everywhere. We've got to get that certification. Before we get that certification, of course, we've got the public vetting period. So we are about 16 months or so away from completion. From the time that we get rolling full tilt to building the production version, and we move away from all the experimentation, and we focus a core team of about 10 folks on building ElectOS to build a voting system. We're about 16 months. My CTO says it could be even less to get to that point. And, and we probably have enough partitionable tasks where we can't accelerate some of that work. So I like to, you know, make sure that I, you know, I, I, I promise an acre and deliver a continent rather than the other way around. So uh, I don't want to overcommit here, but it's more than a year. It's probably less than a year and a half to get to that point. That's the point at which we can get to certification. And now we have opportunities for adoption. Um, so that's that's where that stands today. Um, along the way, while we're doing that, we're working on other pieces of technology that don't require certification, like a project called Vanadium, which is a blockchain-based system for building a better voter registration database to protect voter rolls, and lots of apps and services that, that, that can be used immediately. So we have code adoption. I mean, for example, I got one huge project here right now with half a dozen engineers and a seven-digit budget that's building a ballot marking device for the disability community right? Because that's now a law and states have to provide a way to ensure equal participation protection. And so there's 38 million voters in the United States who can't go to polling places. So there's a need, a real need for, for a better a ballot marking device that serves the accessibility community. So we have a, a number of projects around that. Think of the Trust the Vote project as a software foundry. We're building lots of code for the public benefit to improve elections administration. So we've got various pieces coming into play. We've done a lot of voter registration work, both uh, at the state level. So the Commonwealth of Virginia was one of the earliest adopters of our, of our open source technology for, for voter registration services. As I said, Rock the Vote is a huge adopter of our technology. And there it's been canvassing tools and it's been tools to integrate registration services straight into databases at the state level, right? So APIs to make that possible. So we've got different teams working on different parts of the ecosystem, like bees on a hive. The center of the hive is, is ElectOS. Like I said, 16 months. Here's the other thing that's worth mentioning. It's less than $10 million to finish it. Think about the billions going into campaigns, and there's no money going into ensuring that those ballots are counted as cast. It sounds like it's $10 million you don't have yet. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's the balance of the funding that, that we need to, to finish that work. A third of a, a Senate campaign. Who's been funding it to this point? To this point, it's been uh, uh, private donors and philanthropists, right? So, you know, folks like uh, uh, the Boston Foundation, Tusk Philanthropies, um, individuals you know, on our board, 
Um, folks like Chris Kelly, who was a co-owner of the Sacramento Kings and was uh, Facebook's first counsel, general counsel. So we have private donations and we have the public. And that was the big news here is that we stopped really chasing big donors because, frankly, a lot of them are interested in status quo. And they think, well, the change is great, but do I really want you to build things that tell me I lost fair and square? I'm not so sure. So we really have moved to the public. That's why the Trust the Vote project has become a really public-facing thing, the so-called small-dollar donors. The thing is this. I don't want to have a situation where, and my co-founder agrees with me, so it's we when I say that, really. We don't want to have a situation where someone says, oh, that machine was the, and I'm making this up because it's not true, the Mark Zuckerberg voting machine, the George Soros voting machine, the Bill Koch voting machine. Because um, one of the things that's really important about what we're doing is as being pro-democracy, transpartisan here, we've got folks from all both sides who recognize that we've got to get to a better grade of technology and are solution oriented. So we've got donors from both sides, but what we don't want is to have a single donor or group of donors where someone could say, oh, it's their machine, because that's not true. We want this to be the people's machine. To kind of return to time frame, which election cycle do you think is realistic to hope that there's real usage of this if I could start today, if, if someone were to come in today, and th- th- it's important to give you the kind of the marker here, if someone were to come in today and say, I can write a, a, you know, a, a grant of guarantee that the money will be there over the next 18 months to finish this thing, I believe that we would have a shot at at least a jurisdiction or two in 2024. 2026 is the window that we realistically look to, Right. Um, because we're doing a lot of hardware research right now on some really fantastic things that could make voting by other ways more easy. We also have a lot of work to do in securing hardware. I've got some engineers saying 26 is really the window I feel comfortable saying we could have widespread adoption. I agree with that. 24 is a, is a window that we, we have an opportunity to get early adoption. People seem very obsessed about a paper trail in elections. Is that part of what you have worked in? The durable paper ballot of record is an essential ingredient to elect OS. Ballots are the currency of democracy. And just as we're not ready for cryptocurrency yet, despite the market speculators and the robber barons, we're not ready yet for a, a, a full digital ballot. It just, it's not possible today. If you look at verifiable, accurate, secure, transparent, right? The, verifi- the verifying part of that, right? I've got to be able to know voter intent. The way that I know voter intent is by having a paper ballot of record that I can refer to to see how they marked it. And that way I can do risk limiting audits. So yes, paper ballots of record are core to uh, core to elect to us, and they will be for some time. And even in a digital ballot return world, you should end up with a ballot coming off a printer so that you have a paper ballot of record. I've, I'm aware that there are other companies building alternative voting systems. For-profit companies, I'm not sure of the whole space. Uh, I've seen Votum. Votum, Votes, Smartmatic. Yep. Yep. I think Votum is uh, blockchain-based or or theoretically. Unfortunately. How does that complicate your world or does it? You know, it doesn't complicate our world because we're helping the world understand that there are responsible uses for blockchain technology in many aspects of election administration, just not the casting and counting of ballots. I don't mean the blockchain so much as the the existence of other people pitching new new voting systems to 
jurisdictions. Just oh, like I see. Are. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. What we're doing is we're we're evangelizing the value of open source technology for future voting systems, next generation systems. But as opposed to pitching or selling anything, what I will say about this with regard to the other participants in the United States, things have got to be federally certified, and they have to have state level certification. None, none of those smaller vendors have achieved any sort of certification because they cannot, because they cannot abide by the model that requires in all the regulatory schemes across the country, a paper ballot of record at some point. Secondly, I want to- Well, I mean, the existing vendors do. So why can't a new vendor? What do you mean the existing vendors do? You cited multiple companies like uh, Dominion, Mm -hmm. which are already- I assume certified. So why can't another company get certified? I'm sorry, Nathaniel, my bad. They're certified because they have met the requirements under the voluntary voting systems guidelines to build a system that meets or exceeds the minimum requirements at state and federal level. And one of the one of the overarching requirements is I have to have a paper ballot of record. I have to have the ability to understand voter intent. Oh, by the way, um, for example, wireless networks and... and oh, so you're um, talking about like some of these systems allow you to vote from home or something like that. Right. And, that, and that, right. so that won't work. Right, right. So none of those vendors, although they have a, a business model and they're building product, have a role here on a widespread basis. Now, let me be very careful to point out where they do apply and do play. Remember, we have the overseas and military voting requirement. And in the case of overseas expats and those folks, these companies offer a service that is allowed. So many of the states, many of the states do provide for such technology for that limited application. There's another point to make. These companies also are global. So remember that there are many places in the world where for a host of reasons, not the least of which, for example, is federated identification, you can provide digital voting systems and solutions like Votes or Votum uh, or Smartmatic uh, or Democracy Live, etc. They have a business. There is a business on a global basis where you have parliamentary governments and you have um, elections for which the ballots are much different. The elections are federalized. You have the ability to have a strongly typed authenticated digital ID. Remember, in this country, the notion of a photo ID it's just not a very easy concept for people to swallow, even though they have to use it at airports and every place else. It's not something that we're about in elections at this point, because we haven't figured out how to ensure that every voter can easily get a photo ID. So the ability to strongly type an identification in the country today is difficult. And so a lot of these vendors and their advanced technologies look promising, but we're building to get into that evolution, right? Under today's design constraints, we can get the trust of these elections officials that we're building for problems that they have to solve today, not tomorrow or a generation from now. And then once that technology ramp begins, we can then ramp with it as as changes inevitably come and more and new ways to cast ballots become available. If there were some kind of provable scandal breach in upcoming election where you could tell that something got changed somewhere. Would that help? Certainly a breach would be a terrible and unfortunate thing. And I really hope that never happens. But the fact of the matter is, is that those kinds of incidences can magnify the issue. And and I don't even need the actual 
one, right? I just need the claim that one, the well, we allegation. Have the, we have the happened. allegation in spades already. Right. Right. So we, so I think the, the man, I think the mandate to eliminate those allegations is, is already in place. Um, so I don't know that an actual breach would do everything, anything except, um, you know, create a chaotic frenzy, uh, for what, you know, the conspiracy theorists have been staying for years, conspiracy theorists on all sides of the political spectrum, by the yes, way. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's happening now, uh, and I haven't followed it very closely is dominion suing, uh, about, like Fox and right. other and other folks for and individuals, uh, yeah, yeah, for uh, besmirching their name and claiming fraud where there wasn't. Uh, how does that play into it? What and what do you think of that lawsuit? So the lawsuits have merit because um, the fact of the matter is um, there has been irreparable harm to their brands. Now I want to be careful to point out that I'm not defending these companies because I think they could build way better technology. I, I, I remember we got started in a venture capital firm, blue-blooded capitalist. I get that their business model doesn't support the kind of innovation we need, but they are still a commercial business. They are still entitled to defend their brand and where their brand has been defamed, they have a right uh, to defend it. So I think the suit is valid. I think there was a lot of defamation that was completely off the hook. Um, I mean, just crazy talk. It's just cray-cray as we call it, cray busting around here as we call it. So I think the suit has merit. And, and frankly, I hope they win I, because I think that, that, that marks need to be able to defend themselves. Um, in terms of the merits of the suit on the other side, none. The claims that they made and the allegations that they raise uh, about the technology of that company are completely unfounded. Is there inherent design vulnerability? Yes. But the claims they raised are just crazy. It seems to me like one possible route, and I'm sure you've considered this, for adoption of your technology is to have the Dominions and the Heart InterCivics and the ESNS to adopt your operating system. Have you discussed that with them? Is there any chance of it? Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, listen, when we when we get this work finished, it's got an open source license. It's available to anyone. I mean, some companies have made these changes before, like right, they've moved to They've moved to Linux, like Apple. Well, yeah, exactly. Right? Look at yeah. look at IBM. Look yeah. at IBM. They end, right. they they so bought into Linux and gave up on OS two that they ended up buying Red Hat. So there, there, there's definitely. I mean, look, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think there was viability to this cause. Now, to to answer your question, yeah, one of one of the three vendors um, has been open to the notion of acquiring technology to help them advance innovation from wherever that technology may be had. And if it turns out that that technology is public technology, open source. I know one of the three companies would be likely to consider it. I'm guessing that's Heart InterCivic because of the way you spoke about them earlier. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. And yeah. and people know that Eddie Perez, who was who was VP of Product at Heart for years, was you know part of our technologies team for years, and then joined our board when he moved to Twitter. So so yeah, I, I, have I have we had any direct conversations with these companies about this yet? Not recently. Has there been precedent for that conversation? Yes. I mean, um, if they started to get scared of your uh, disrupting them, that, that that seems like they would take a deeper look at it. We have been threatened that they would take a legal look at it, which we oh, think I mean, would be I don't mean a, I don't mean a legal, but I mean like a like a change in their business model around it and an adoption because I know if I were running a company like that, I would not be feeling secure forever if I was based on, 
old tech and i knew that the that the fate of democracy in the us was in the perilous state that it's in right now right and and nathaniel you uh, one of the things i've learned about the space is we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't work too hard to be too rational about all this but the fact of the matter is um yes our, our greatest hope is that that the incumbents will see the power and potential of this and, and they'll do it. We've had folks recognize that it would just be a pure public relations move for them to do it, that they could immediately change the complexion of their company by saying, we're going to go open source. We're going to make our technology transparent. Could they just, rather than adopting your, could they just open source their own tech and solve the and and become their own glass boxes. Yeah, wouldn't that it would be nice, right? But there's there's several reasons why they won't do that. Part of it is their part of it is their archaic thinking. Part of it is their archaic business model, and part of it is frankly the stuff they have isn't all that good. But that would be their chance to get the thousand eyes on it that you would yeah. also like. Yeah, I would I would like that. Listen. We would declare I mean, success. The, 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 if, right. I mean, the, if you just provoked the the movement to better tech, rather than it actually was your tech, that's a that part would, of our mission. Yeah, that, that no, we're, we're we're in complete agreement here. That's a part of our mission. Yeah. Yes, we have a reference implementation that we think is going to be one of the finest because of what we put together and what we're building. We don't pretend any moment to be the, the, the only answer. And the mission here is to advocate for that transparency. Let me remind you that there are other projects out there, right? Well, there's another company out there called Voting Works, right? Um, they're a commercial company. They're they're a B corporation, I think. Or they No, they actually claim to be a nonprofit, but they have a business model to build and, and deliver open source technology. We're rooting for them. We hope they're, they're successful because there's plenty of room. There's plenty of room for innovation in this space. We think ElectOS is the future. Um, we think there's room for not just ElectOS, but what VotingWorks is doing. We think there's room for the vendors themselves uh, to do this. The key here really at the root of it all, and the reason to get behind the Trust the Vote project, Nathaniel, is not because uh, we're going to go build the people's voting system alone. It's that we are advocating for the people's voting technology in general. The transparency quotient is essential to trust. That's at the heart of our mission. It's why we have the the names that we do, Open Source Election Technology and the Trust the Vote Project. It's been super fascinating for me to talk to you about this today, and I've, I've learned a ton. Uh, is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, there's so many things we could talk about. Yeah, I mean, um, it's. I, I yeah. feel like I could go another hour and a half. We could, yeah. yeah. I mean, so truly, and maybe maybe there'll be a, another time to talk about that. About I'd, be happy, I'd be happy to do a second one down the road, yeah. Yeah, I think, I'd, and, and that might be the way to go. I, I would say, uh, for now, I think that we... I think we covered the most important parts. I mean, you know, how people can get involved is to just come visit our websites. We have a podcast um, called Dead Men Don't Vote, um, where we uh, work to demystify elections for common folks. I say common as folks who don't make a life of being in elections land, but they care about how they cast and count their ballots. So Dead Men Don't Vote is out there. We're about four episodes into it right now. Uh, we've, we've covered the disability vote. We've covered whether dead men actually do vote. We had a really fabulous interview with Dana Debovar, who was uh, for 36 years was Travis County, Texas um, registrar. She's got a lot to say about the, the the trenches and the front lines of democracy. We've got an upcoming episode on why paper ballots, why the durable paper ballot of record. So deadmendontvote.org, or you can find it at trustthevote.org, our website there, or wherever you get your podcasts. But um, 
there are a lot of things that you've done in your career in and around this space that uh, I think would be great stuff for us to talk about over there at some point too. I think that, you know, in terms of questions that, you know, media thing is how to find out about us, please go check it out. And of course, you know what? I got to say it, right? We need, we need help. We're financially dependent upon public donations and the public dollars to make this project work and get done. We have a firm belief that small dollar donations can have a huge impact here. That's one of the reasons Joe Trippi got involved to help us because he agrees with that theory. Uh, you think about the millions that go into campaigns. And did you realize that for in the last campaign cycle, I think it was what, over $2 billion was spent and one-tenth of one penny on the dollar is what's being allocated to the infrastructure that ensures that all that money for that candidate, that their ballots are counted as cast. I feel like what we're doing is a bit of an insurance policy on democracy. If you can't be assured that the ballots are counted as cast, then what are you doing throwing all your money at your favorite candidate, right? So if you're throwing 25 bucks at your favorite candidate, why aren't you throwing five bucks at at this, right? That's our thinking. That's our, our theory. And it's working. I mean, we've got, I think, uh, something Aaron would know, but I think we have something north of 10,000 people who've opted in to subscribe and get content from us and participate. So, Is there any chance that one of the state governments would just fund that $10 million or? Well, we're our corporate development team is constantly working on where we can get grants, where we can get uh, funding. We're at that level. The, the dollars are down to such a attractable amount that there's a lot of places looking and kicking tires and wondering, right? So you've got a, you've got a large excess fund in California now that one of our folks is working on where they're trying to figure out how should they allocate some money towards innovation for election securing technology. And we're saying, hey, right here, right? So it's not impossible. The, the, the challenge, again, as you know, is that the devil's in the details. And I feel like if we, the people, can build this this system the way we build, you know, bricks and courtyards and squares and towns that we can own this thing. Uh, we've even got a plan where our uh, source code, the original source code, master source code is going to be housed in the National Archives. We intend to put every donor's name into that source code. So it's we, the people. Is is there a business opportunity for someone to start a company based on your software and be the commercial servicer and extender of that? There is a rich opportunity. It's the Red Hat play. There's a reason we've got a couple of Red Hat executives on our board and our advisory, right? If there is a rich opportunity, where is that at the moment in terms of happening? It's in the wings waiting for a sufficient amount of ElectOS to be finished to be able to- I mean, there are people that are planning to do this already? I I know of several people who are interested. I mean, look, we've got 70 people at the OSA Institute. I know several engineers- who believe that one of the things they want to do when they get done is to be there to support it and carry it forward in a commercial capacity. So look, there's going to be core engineers out of this team. People are going to be highly sought after. We know that. It's, I mean, you've been in the, in the VC world and in the tech world. Have you considered moving over to that effort at the appropriate time? Would you be interested in that? So we got into this realizing that is actually really a terrible business, right? I mean, it's... it's well, you don't want to sell it that way. Well, but I understand, <laughs> but I'm just... Look, I'm being intellectually honest. I warned yeah. you, right? Here's the thing, right? It's a, it's a $300 million a year business in the United States. It's, it's $3 billion globally, right? Which is why the OSET's mission, by the way, is global in nature. So it's a bigger market opportunity globally. The US market's kind of small, closed, and it's procurement and whatnot. But that said, it's a non-institutional play, right? There's no institutional venture capital firm that's going to fund a startup 
to do this. But there is a lot of uh, opportunity for investment because we've penciled it out, uh, as you might imagine. There's about 150 to $200 million a year business opportunity there for somebody to build a Red Hat style company that is servicing an enterprise grade Elect OS uh, and continuing that development. Yeah, that opportunity exists. I wouldn't sneeze at a $150 million company, but- Nor, nor would I. Yeah. Institutional well, investors, different story, but yeah. So I would say that if you, there's a lot of reasons to get involved with this project, Nathaniel. People who have commercial interest and are thinking about building their own business, people who want to actually help cut the code of a new machine and be a part of some democracy history, people who say, look, I care about my ballots count as cast. I, I want to give 25 bucks to this and be a member of the Trust the Vote Project so that we, the people, can do a little disruption here of things. And I don't want to disrupt vendors. I want to facilitate their success. I want to disrupt the business model of black box technology. Well, that seems like a good note on which to end, but is there anything else you want to say? Thank you for having me and learning a little bit more about this. It's been a great chat. I hope we have more conversation about this. I'd love to be able to answer people's questions, right? Maybe there's follow-up to your to your podcast. Uh, we'd be happy to do that. We want to engage as many people in this as we can because we think this is an essential movement. It has a moral imperative to it. If we cannot trust the vote, we have no democracy. Thanks much. That was Greg Miller. He is at osetinstitute.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.